Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi, I'm Lauren Dempster. Welcome to LawPod. I'm a lecturer here at the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast. Today, I am joined by Professor Robin Hickey and Dr. Rachel Colleen to discuss their research project, Restoring Cultural Property and Communications After Conflict. So could you both please introduce yourselves? I am Rachel Colleen. You may also know me as the usual host of this podcast, so it feels really weird to be on the other side of this, but happy to be here. And I'm also very happy to be here. I'm Robin Hickey. I'm the head of the law school at Queen's and a professor of law here at the school. So uh, to begin with Robin and Rachel, could you introduce the project for us? So thanks, Lauren. Um, the project is called Restoring Cultural Property and Communities um, After Conflict. And um, we were interested in the destruction of cultural property for, for lots of different reasons. So I am a kind of property theory, property law kind of person. And I am generally interested in the relationship between property and life and how property supports human life and society in lots of different ways. And Rachel had spent a little bit of time in uh, Cambodia and we knew that this had been an issue there. We were also sort of generally interested within the team in in questions of of international law and the cultural property mechanisms that exist uh, and really trying to move beyond the existing um, understandings of things to to get a, a kind of closer understanding of the relationship between property loss and harms that are experienced um, by uh, by communities. Okay, so maybe I could do a bit of introduction into the case study then. So I, as Robin said, have done a lot of research into Cambodia and in particular the crimes perpetrated by the Khmer Rouge regime. And it's maybe worth saying a little bit about who they are and um, what they did in Cambodia for those that might not be so familiar with the case study. So the Khmer Rouge were a communist regime. They seized power in Cambodia in 1975, following a prolonged period of civil war and extensive bombing of Cambodia by the US. And they basically wanted to reset Cambodia. So they wanted what they called a return to year zero to rid the country of all foreign influence, to put peasants and agrarian workers in the driving seat. They were very suspicious of any kind of intellectual elites. Many of them were targeted for extermination over the course of the regime. And so this manifested in a number of different policies. So we were obviously interested in the destruction of culture and the targeting of cultural property, but I think it's worth putting that in the context of what was generally going on. So for one, the Khmer Rouge introduced collectivization. So they abolished all sense of private property They sent people out of the cities to live in communes. They introduced forced work. They abolished money. They abolished uh, formal education. They introduced a number of large projects, building dams, building airfields, and forced the population to to work on that. They covered the regulation of marriage and family relationships. People were required to dedicate themselves to the state. So there wasn't uh, the normal kind of family structures that we would be used to. And in furtherance of these goals, they increasingly 
persecuted their population. As is often the case in authoritarian regimes, they became increasingly paranoid. They wanted to weed out traitors. The death toll increased and increased over the course of the four years and eight months that they were in power. While a lot of people were targeted for extermination, in fact, I think the grand majority of deaths that happened during this regime are a result of this forced work and starvation that was experienced by the population. So our focus is never intended as a way of minimizing these you know, wide-ranging harms. But what we were particularly interested in was, as I say, this targeting of diversity. So the narrative at the time under the Khmer Rouge was very much of this kind of master Khmer race. So they talked a lot about Angkor Wat and the kind of glory of the old Cambodian eras bygone. And so they really didn't want anything that was seen as a divergence from that kind of nation, imagined nation. So the Cham were an Islamic community that we became interested in, and they were subjected to a very particular form of persecution. The Cham then are this group who originate from the Kingdom of Champa. So the Kingdom of Champa existed in Vietnam in about up until about the 17th century. But from about the 11th century onwards, the kind of geopolitics of that region were changing. And the Cham started to move into Cambodia as a result of persecution by what would now, what is now Vietnam and setting up communes along the Mekong in Cambodia and establishing communities. So they've had a long-standing presence in Cambodia. They practice Islam, so they differ from the Buddhist majority. They tend to live in micro-communities, so they, they might live adjacent to a Khmer village, but they tend to live amongst themselves. They have their own language, the Cham language. So at the time of the Khmer Rouge, they were living in Cambodia in lots of different provinces and had a fine relationship with the Khmer majority. And this slowly changed over the course of the Khmer Rouge regime. So the Khmer Rouge, as I said, were against any displays of diversity. So the Cham were not allowed to exercise their religious um, or cultural practices. And they resisted this. So they pushed back, they tried to go to the mosque, um, they tried to practice Ramadan, for example. And as a result of that, and as also as a result of the increasing paranoia that I mentioned within the Khmer Rouge regime, the Khmer Rouge started to target the Cham more deliberately as the regime went on. So I was already aware of this from my previous research, but we became interested in these particular attacks on Cham culture. So, for example, the destruction of mosques, the burning of Qurans, the forcing Cham people to do things that were counter to their cultural identity. And so we thought that they might be quite an interesting case study of a group that have suffered this kind of attacks on cultural property, but that don't normally get thought about when we're thinking about cultural property. So often focuses on cultural property tend to be about big objects of international significance. And we were interested in seeing, well, what is the nature of the harm to the community themselves? And given that Cambodia is now 40 years after the regime, the CHAM also offered an opportunity to explore responses to that type of harm and how uh, communities actually repair and rebuild after a period of genocide, including attacks on their culture. Do you want to tell us more about your time in the field in Cambodia in terms of where you visited and who you spoke with there? 
I think the first thing to say is we partnered with a, with an NGO that's based in Phnom Penh, and that was an NGO that a few of us had done bits and pieces of work with before, and it was well known to us in that sense. So that's the Documentation Centre for Cambodia, DC Cam. And from there, we were kind of based in Phnom Penh, and we met different members of uh, the Cham community, this particular community that we were, were working with. And so we would meet groups of religious leaders, community leaders, community members, and we would meet groups of young people sometime. And we just kind of traveled around. We were sort of based in Phnom Penh and then traveling around the, the, the provinces um, nearby. We spoke to about 75 different people or different members of the community in total over a kind of two-week period in, in March 2017. And then Rachel followed that up at the end of 2018 with another visit out to, to the partner and some, and some other NGOs working in, in Cambodia. So perhaps could you, you both tell us a bit more about what you found out during your time in the field? What were your key findings? So we were interested in these two dimensions. So first of all, what is the nature of the harm that occurs when a community has their cultural property specifically targeted? And then secondly, how might we have, how might we frame a meaningful response to that harm? So if I maybe talk a little bit about the harm, what we found was that we have this community who have essentially lost a sense of self to some extent. So what I mean by that is when we asked the Cham about their heritage and their history, they weren't really able to articulate that much beyond the sense of being people who practice Islam and occasionally people who speak the Cham language. And they would talk about that in the context of having had lost a huge amount of self-knowledge through attacks on their religious teachers, on their ability to connect with the generation above, and a sense of disconnect with their heritage. So that was one of the ways that it manifest. And then we also, in that context, were interested in the connections between uh, their cultural property and the property that had been lost, and their ability to kind of um, express their identity. And maybe Robin, you want to say a bit about that? Yeah, I suppose a, a good place to start with that is that I, I think we expected, um, imagining that we would hear quite particular things about the relationship between cultural property and their experience as a community. So, I, I mean, I mentioned before that, that the Almacti case had been going on and, and there had been an international effort to rebuild those mausolea. And as we were coming to the, the Chams experience, we were imagining that communities would be interested in in rebuilding things that have been um, taken from them by, by the Khmer Rouge. Maybe they'd be interested in rebuilding those in a particular way or in a particular place so that there'd be this kind of effort on, on physical restoration. And I suppose one of the things that, that we became aware of pretty quickly in the course of the fieldwork is that there wasn't a very strong sense of that from the community and, and they weren't really very inclined to be interested in a particular mosque being rebuilt in a particular place or in a particular way, say. And so quite quickly in the fieldwork, we began to reflect on why and, and the different meanings and values of this kind of property um, within the, the communities. And as we've kind of worked on the project, we've started to kind of disaggregate that into different kind of findings about property and, and specifically the kind of values that property might support. And, and so one of those is the, the emotional value of 
property. So uh, a really interesting thing that, that occurred is that in, in, in explaining the kind of harm involved in, in loss of, say, a mosque, the, the communities expressed that in ways that made it a, a much more personal attack on their life or the, or the life of their community. So one of our interviews said it was like they held our mosque hostage. It's like they arrest our children. I, I feel suffering. And there was this really visceral, really personal way in which the loss of property was was expressed. And so it mattered to communities because of that sense of emotional um, attachment. Um, kind of relatedly, it, it, it mattered to them because of things that it allowed them to express about themselves and about their uh, life. So the expressive value of property was important. It, it mattered very little that, um, as I've said, something was rebuilt in a particular way. And, and related to that is this idea that there's not much intrinsic worth attached to mosques or other or items of personal property, that rather they matter because of their capacity to allow expression of faith or um, the values or, or ideals of, of, of a community. And that's quite interesting in, in terms of kind of property theory perspectives, because there's quite a lot of general literature and certainly there's there's cultural property literature about the particular relationship between things and the expression of, of self and identity. And, and we were kind of interested in proving that a bit. And, and we, we certainly find it in, in our conversations with the with the Chan people. The, the final um, thing, the final of the three values that we've kind of um, untangled is, is about the social value of property and the value of things and places to facilitate community. In the case of mosques, to facilitate gathering for the practice of faith. Um, you know, uh, occasionally we would come across communities where um, there was a building project underway or they had previously made changes to their mosque, maybe expanded and extended it. And when we would kind of probe that, and, and again, remember, we're expecting to find senses of attachment to the way things were before the, the regime. Instead of finding those kinds of attachment, we find sentiments like, well, we, we just need a bigger space because there's more people in our community now. So it makes sense to extend our meeting place. The focus was always on the function of um, the space and its capacity to, to build their community rather than on the kind of intrinsic worth or, or value of the things themselves. Thanks, Robin. So, I mean, you've both touched on there. There are various, there, there were various harms that were perpetrated against the CHAM. Can you tell us a bit more about how these harms have been responded to in the years since the fall of the Khmer Rouge? So I suppose there's two different kinds of responses that we're um, interested in. And one are the kind of sort of organic community-led responses that we saw on the ground. And then there's a, a kind of broader question about institutional responses to, to the harm that have been made in, in Cambodia. So um, maybe if I talk about the, the community stuff first, I mean, one thing that was very striking is that the recovery of the Cham people in terms of their resettlement of these villages um, in, in the surrounding area beyond Phnom Penh and their rebuilding of all aspects of community, including their cultural life and their property, that all of this happened really organically and it was very much community-led. We came back step by step. It's one of my favourite quotes from the, the fieldwork and that was meant in, in a literal sense. You know, the Cham had been dispersed um, by the regime across Cambodia. Families had been separated from, from each other. You know, families had been broken down in that sense. 
And there was a story of one foot in front of the other, gradually finding the way back to the village and, and rebuilding um, life uh, along the way. Uh, we started with an empty hand. Somebody said there was this real um, sense of, um, of, of ongoing rebuilding. And so far as that involves property and the rebuilding of mosques in particular, there was no kind of specific intervention in terms of reallocating land to the community or allowing them to rebuild their, their cultural property. This all kind of happened organically over a, a, a decade, 15 years or so, that kind of saw different kinds of transitions in the governing structures in Cambodia, including in, in the 1990s, international intervention and the development of a new constitution and so on. In the midst of all of this, there's no particularly targeted like land law or property intervention. Uh, there's no redistribution mechanism, as there might be um, some of the time in the aftermath of conflict. So communities were able to use ordinary land laws Land laws, you know, if there are um, students who have studied land law listening to the podcast, um, rules that would look pretty ordinary and would find their place in any kind of property law textbook seem to allow the communities to recover. Rules that provided for um, the the kind of uh, the return of private property generally to Cambodia, rules that in the case of religious property uh, allowed that private property to be held by a community rather than by individuals. These mechanisms were used to allow communities to, to rebuild or recover their mosques on uh, on whichever site um, the community agreed upon. And so there was a bit of a sense that, that, that people were just able to get on with it, that, that and even that sentence covers over a whole multitude of stuff because life was tough in Cambodia, economic conditions were far from ideal, health and sanitation conditions were far from ideal, like there really was a, a complete rebuilding. And largely, in the case of the Cham, that seems to have been through the ordinary efforts of ordinary people rebuilding their lives piece by piece. So I could add then to that, I guess, a little bit about the more formalised institutional responses that have happened since. So what Robin is describing was in part due to the fact that there was no formal response. You know, in the aftermath of the regime, there was a brief kind of show trial and then essentially the normal people around the country were left to you know get on with things and make the most of what they could and so that as Robin said spans a really long period of time and then in the mid-2000s then we have the introduction of a formalized response in the form of the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia so that was one of the focuses of our research as well, like to what extent the C, as it's referred to, had managed to capture the harm that had been done to the CHAM community. And that tribunal is able to grant um, reparations or acknowledge projects as reparations. So we were interested in, in what had been done so far and whether there had been any reparations that spoke to this particular loss of cultural property and cultural heritage. So the C has completed two cases and it's the second case which is against two of the senior leaders Nujia and Kusampan that particularly concerns the crimes against the Cham and they in a judgment in 2019 uh, revealed that they found Nujia guilty of genocide against the Cham that the Cham had been persecuted on the basis of their religion and the judgment itself um, includes quite specific acknowledgement of some of the types of violence that were perpetrated against the Cham's culture and the Cham's cultural heritage. So 
they make reference to things like the destruction of mosques. The judgment refers to the destruction of Qurans. It references some of the more humiliating aspects of the way the Cham were treated. So things like being forced to eat pork, even though that's prohibited by their religion. The fact that Cham women were required to cut their hair. And that was common across Cambodia, not just the Cham, but for the Cham, this was an affront to their morality. This is something that came up a lot in our interviews as well. So the judgment itself recognises these particular attacks against culture, but we don't really see that translating into the reparations that have been offered. So this is a bit of a tangent, but the way the ACCC reparation system works is that these projects are basically designed by civil society organisations, sometimes working with the victim support services of the court. And then the judgment will acknowledge that these projects, which have often already been completed, um, can constitute reparations. So in the case of the CHAM, we found there's an exhibition that talks about the experiences of ethnic minorities in Cambodia. And there's a series of films that have an ex exhibition that, again, accompanies that, that explores the specific experiences of the CHAM and the rebellions that I mentioned at the start of the podcast. But that's essentially it. And although we did our fieldwork at a time before the judgment had been issued, we were in Cambodia at a time where those projects had already been implemented. And we didn't really get a sense that these projects had a great deal of meaning to the CHAM that we spoke with. Some of them were aware of them, some weren't. That's, you know, the reality. It's a large country and these are exhibitions and films. They're not necessarily going to be accessible to these communities. But there remained a sense that there hadn't really been something that we could consider an institutional response to this cultural heritage destruction. And what we found was by, you know, asking the CHAM, like, what would you like? What would constitute a reparation for you. Part of it was if they were still in the process of rebuilding a mosque or something like that, they would ask for financial support towards that. But we found that something that came up a lot was this sense of intergenerational harm that I mentioned a moment ago and the sense of feeling disconnected to their heritage and particularly a disconnection between the generation that had survived the regime, their ancestors, but also then their descendants and this desire for the CHAM to be known. So to be known outside their community, to, but also to be understood within their community. So we would hear requests for um, museum space or for educational materials or things like that. So for us, that kind of highlighted the ongoing gap, if you like, you know, the CHAM had managed to maybe rebuild some of what they had physically lost, but they hadn't ever really managed to regain what they had lost in terms of their sense of identity as a group. So uh, the final question then I have for both of you is obviously the project focused on the Cham community in Cambodia. What have you found that might be of interest beyond this particular case study? So I suppose I can start by thinking about um, interest for, for for systems of property, including cultural property. I mean, there's there's a, a general sense here um, that, that, that I mentioned at the start that property matters because it's capable of doing different things in in life and so in in property theory there's quite a big literature and, and, and emerging literature on the sense in which property is capable of serving many different kinds of, of human values beyond kind of the economic and kind of self-interested values that sometimes property is associated with and and, and I think that this paper 
right? And, and this project kind of fits with that sense of uh, of a richer, more plural sense of, of property as, as an institution. Um, and, you know, it, it's hard not to be struck by the sense in which property mattered to um, the Cham community because of how it enabled their community and the ways that it helped them to rebuild, even if those things weren't necessarily in, in, intentional. And I think that that might well have some important applications beyond the, the case study. Within cultural property in particular, there's often a sense that cultural property matters because of the universal interest that we all have in culture being protected. And that idea that, that cultural property has this universal value would figure in some of the, the major international instruments about cultural property, for example. Um, and one of the things that I think that this project reminds us of is that that, and, and to the extent that that's true, it always needs to be checked against the particular thoughts and wishes and values and aims of the, the community that are most directly affected by by, by the conflict and, and by the need to, to rebuild. And so there's a sense in which the case study points towards a, a kind of more grassroots, more community-oriented, community-led set of recovery measures in response to this kind of destruction. That was interesting for us because, uh, you know, our, our initial ideas for the project were, were full of grand aims and hubris, like we were going to come up with some sort of uh, set of um, conventions to allow these problems to be tackled worldwide. I think at one stage we were talking about drafting um, a treaty or something like that. So we had high aims um, for this in terms of what was possible at the general level. And the project has really reminded us that, that individual people matter and that property matters to the extent that it supports communities to, to rebuild. One of the challenges for us is is how much we can generalize that intuition because um, it, it, consistent with everything that I've just said, that this matters in this way because it mattered to the CHAM community in, in this way. And we're really trying to resist making more general uh, observations as a result of the project. We, we want to stay faithful to um, the things that we have heard and to respect the communities that we've been working with in that sense. But even if you allow for that limitation, I think there is something more general that emerges from this that does stress the value of engaging communities in, in the recovery process. Yeah, and I think that links to maybe why this case study might be interesting for people with a interest in transitional justice, which is my own background. So when we were exploring this topic, we ended up drawing from a particular framework of dignity taking and dignity restoration, which isn't a transitional justice framework. It's something born of um, property theory and theories around the, the loss of property um, by the state. But we find that even though we were coming at this project from this maybe property-driven perspective, there was a lot of overlap with some of the big debates that are happening within transitional justice about the way forward in redressing um, atrocities and, and you know, crimes like genocide. And so we found when we were thinking about um, looking beyond the value of the property and thinking about broader rehabilitation measures and the way that you can create the circumstances in which the atrocities that were perpetrated cannot reoccur. This finds crossover with transitional justice discussions about the value of non-recurrence, um, about the value of transformative justice, and this idea that we should not just respond in quite a 
simple way to, you know, you lost this, so here you can have this back. But think about forward-looking measures which address these underlying structures of inequality that can allow for, for genocide to take place. So there's some parallels to be drawn there. I think, as Robin says, the the real value of a bottom-up approach is one which has been flagged within transitional justice literature for quite a long time, but which remains quite difficult to deliver in practice. And I guess the case of the CHAM shows us not just that there's a real need to listen to what communities want when we're designing reparations, but also maybe just having a broader understanding of what a transition looks like and looking at these kind of community-driven processes that we highlighted. You know, the CHAM community for all intents and purposes had to pursue a form of transition on, on their own. And this wasn't something that was given to them by the state, although it was facilitated to some extent, as we saw through um, property law and through, you know, the reintroduction of religious freedom. But that case study invites us to think about what communities do for themselves. And so that ties into work that's also done within Queens by people like um, Kieran McAvoy about transitional justice from below. So it's a real case study in that. But then also of making sure that you're truly understanding the ways that different harms relate to each other. So yes, we have the loss of physical stuff, but what is coming through is that this physical stuff has all these other implications for communities. And we can't really have a bottom-up form of transitional justice and a, a meaningful response if we're not really listening and taking that seriously. So I think that's a really important finding. It's maybe not setting the world alight or, or you know, remaking the wheel, um, but I think it has value in really stressing the importance of grounding responses to conflict in, in these communities and allowing for a new nuanced understanding of harm. Thank you, Rachel and Robin. The project sounds really fascinating. Where might we be able to find a bit more about the project? So we have a little section on a reparations website within kind of culture and history story of the CHAM. So that's available there and that's at reparations.qub.ac.uk. But we can post the full link in the show notes. Robin, I think you and our colleagues already have a publication out. Do you want to flag that? Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, we have begun to think about what this might mean for um, the, the idea of reparations in, in international law and particularly those bits of international law that seek to respond to the destruction of cultural property. So um, we've got a paper in the International Journal of Heritage Studies and um, you'd be able to pick up the details for that on um, the Queen's website as well. So we'll post that link um, for folks as well. And then, you know, keep keep your eyes out on, on the journals for the next year or so. There's a couple of more things in, in train. And we're going to be picking up, Rachel and I are just working, in fact, on, on the end of a paper that picks up the connection between property and these different kinds of harms that we've been talking about. That's excellent. Thanks to both of you. Um, I really look forward to seeing what else comes out of the project. You've been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events, brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by the Queen's University Law School. Thank you to Rachel Colleen and Robin Hickey. You can follow LawPod on Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit the website lawpod.org and please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify or anywhere else you get your podcasts. 
Thank you for listening. I'm Lauren Dempster and this was Lawpod. Thank you.